0: Please be seated. Good morning and welcome, welcome to the Court of Appeals. Uh, Ms. Bennett, are you going to call the first case?
1: Please the court, John Parrish here on behalf of the appellants, Kelly Adams and Daniel Adams, along with uh, Kate Cook, who's seated at my right, uh, reserved five minutes for rebuttal. OCGA 9371A, the statute of limitations for medical malpractice action, requires a medical malpractice action to be brought within two years after the date on which an injury or death arising from a negligent or wrongful act or omission occurred. Kelly Adams had a stroke on September 17, 2013. She had a stroke because eight or nine months earlier, her condition that caused the stroke was misdiagnosed by Applelees, McDonald, and Penix. The September 17, 2013 stroke was the first and only injury that was caused as a result of the misdiagnosed condition. The statute of limitations was September 17, 2015. The case was timely filed on September 10, 2015. Nevertheless, at the close of discovery, a motion for summary judgment was filed, and the trial court found that the statute of limitations began to run at the time of misdiagnosis, even though there's no medical evidence that's admissible of pain, symptoms, or injury from the misdiagnosed condition until September 17, 2013. You're going to hear a couple of terms during this argument. Uh, Cerebral ischemia, which means an interruption of blood flow to the brain. Transient ischemic attack, which is a transient interruption without injury. Uh, By definition, there is no injury. And stroke, which is an interruption of blood flow where an injury results. And the term myxoma will also be used that's a benign tumor on the heart. The only risk posed by a myxoma is that it can cause a transient ischemic attack or a stroke. The relevant factual background is as follows. Kelly Adams, a neonatologist at Long Street Clinic, was on a shift on January 31st, 2013. She experienced a sudden onset double vision, vertiginous dizziness, a searing headache in the back of her head, um, inability to communicate, and uh, blurred and and, and, uh, uh, distorted vision, blocked vision. Um, A nurse noticed her condition, placed her in a wheelchair, took her to the emergency department at Northeast Georgia Medical Center. Uh, They worked her up for an ischemic stroke, that's clear. They performed all the testing that would be performed for an ischemic stroke or a transient ischemic attack, except an echocardiogram, which is part of the protocol at Northeast Georgia Medical Center for a transient ischemic attack. Dr. Penix was called in to consult. Her symptoms abated approximately 15 minutes after presentation. He saw her uh, several hours later concluded that she had had her first migraine, told her to follow up with Dr. McDonald in three to five days on an outpatient basis. She did that. Dr. Penix testified no injury or damage at the time of discharge. Dr. McDonald assessed her for the January 31st, 2013 event. His differential was TIA versus migraine. He also did not perform an echocardiogram, nor did he look at the testing Northeast Georgia Medical Center to see what tests were conducted. He concluded it was migraine. He treated her and followed her, he and his practice, uh, over the next months treating Kelly Adams for migraine headache. During that time period, she had occasional blurred vision and a mild head pain. On September 17th, 2013, she had an onset of the same symptoms that she had on January 31st, again presented to the emergency department this time, a third neurologist saw her, put her on the TIA protocol, and echocardiogram cardiogram revealed a myxoma. Brain scan revealed a stroke that had occurred on that day, no other stroke injury, and the myxoma was immediately connected to both the stroke and the TIA that had occurred on January 31st, which they now recognized was a TIA. <coughs> As a result of the stroke, Kelly Adams lost half of her vision. Uh, Some of her cognitive functioning is below the fifth percentile. Uh, She's been diagnosed with a seizure disorder. It's illegal for her to drive in the state of Georgia. If the defendants had complied with the standard of care when they treated her initially, the myxoma would have been recognized and removed. No injury would have resulted. Now, the legal analysis here on the statute of limitations defense is that they have the burden of proof. They have to show undisputed evidence that there was an injury arising from the two instances of misdiagnosis prior to September, prior, well, more than two years before we filed suit. All of the evidence in the trial court, all of the expert testimony, was that there was no injury or damage from this myxoma until September 17, 2013. That's the first time when anyone testifies that there was injury or damage or symptoms from this undiagnosed myxoma. In well, the trial word
0: court, doesn't hindsight tell us that the blurred vision and the other symptoms were in fact uh, a symptom of the myxoma?
1: Incorrect, Your Honor. In the trial court, the experts for the defense specifically testified in hindsight that those symptoms were more likely than not actually migraines, that she was having a migraine condition. And I'm going to, I will quote the testimony. Appley McDonald, one of the defendants, testified And I asked him in retrospect, he said she didn't have any neurologic deficits consistent with cerebral ischemia between her original presentation in the emergency room and her stroke. It was all consistent with migraine. End quote. That was in retrospect. Their expert, Robert Adams, from Charleston, South Carolina, neurology expert. I asked him whether he had an opinion to a reasonable degree of medical certainty regarding whether symptoms between January 31st, 2013 and September 17, 2013, were caused by the myxoma. His response, quote, I have an opinion. I don't see any evidence that anything was caused by the myxoma then. Jay Schechter, another neurology expert retained by the defense, he testified that the starry vision pattern and the head pain that led him to conclude that the symptoms between January 31st and September 17th were migraine, that led him to conclude that those symptoms were migraine headache. trial
0: court... Well, migraine could be symptomatic of something else, but what you're telling me is that the evidence at trial did not support that that possibility
1: in this case, right? The evidence on summary judgment uh, was undisputed. The expert testimony was undisputed that there were no symptoms from the myxoma between January 31st and September 17th to a reasonable degree of medical certainty. One of our experts testified that it was a possibility, but he said it was speculative and below the threshold of uh, a reasonable probability. In other words, less than 50%. If you flip this around, and we were going to try and file a medical malpractice lawsuit for some injury or symptom or some kind of damage that occurred uh, during the time period that we're talking about here, we would have to have testimony that more likely than not, there was injury or symptom or some something that was actionable during that time period. For them to get summary judgment, to have any chance of getting summary judgment on their statute of limitations defense, they would have to have the evidence have to be undisputed that there was an injury or symptom or something from the misdiagnosed condition during that time period. And here, that just doesn't exist. The trial court got it 180 degrees incorrect. Um, actually, what the trial court did was apply the statute as it existed prior to 1985, when it would start running upon a negligent act that was held to be unconstitutional in a Supreme Court's decision in Schessel, and was amended so it starts to run when there is an injury.
2: Now, now assuming that so. um, they point to some evidence that would say otherwise, that there was, you know, that there was in fact testimony that that your client was symptomatic mm-hmm. uh, afterwards. Um, would that be enough for them to prevail, given, given your testimony, uh, expert witness testimony, that it wasn't related?
1: It would not, Your Honor. Uh, the best that they could do is create a fact issue on that question. And here's why. the Linking the injury, this is a medical malpractice case, and even in a non-medical malpractice case, Supreme Court's 2010 decision in cohort makes clear that a specialized medical question, which is what we have here, requires expert testimony. And Division Two of the Supreme Court's decision in Cleveland began and says that you cannot obtain summary judgment based on opinion testimony. So they could potentially create a jury issue. Uh, Now there's another uh, uh, problem here, and that is that under the new injury exception, which this would fall into, it's the symptoms of the new injury that start the statute of limitations. If you read, uh, if we look at uh, footnote five of this court's nine to three decision, in Cleveland v. Gannon, the argument was made that the underlying condition was symptomatic, and therefore the statute of limitations started to run. This court rejected that and said that it's the symptoms of the new injury that matter, not the underlying condition. And the Supreme Court says the same thing in Division Two of Cleveland v. Gannon.
2: Now, you, I think you, I think your brief pointed out that there's a little bit of tension in some of the cases of our court versus the Supreme Court's recent cases. <clears throat> Do you believe that there's any of our precedent um, in the, at, our, at the Court of Appeals that should be clarified or, or changed in light of recent Supreme Court opinions?
1: I believe that there is uh, at least some tension um, between some of the decisions. There, there's a decision, uh, the daily decision cited by the defense. Uh, it's not clear whether the patient's metastatic cancer that was the new injury was symptomatic the entire time. It seems to indicate that the underlying condition was symptomatic, and therefore uh, there was no injury or no new injury. But uh, if you look at M.U.V. Barnes, for example, the patient's cancer was colon cancer. And the science was that it slowly grows and gets worse day by day, month by month. And the Supreme Court recognized that some claims for pain and suffering uh, that preceded the Uh, further back than two years before suit was filed may have lapsed, but uh, there's no evidence that the metastatic cancer had become symptomatic more than two years before suit was filed. So I think there is a little bit of tension there. Uh, This court doesn't need to reach that in this case because this is the case where there's no evidence, no medical evidence that's admissible that more likely than not, the underlying condition was symptomatic between the first time of misdiagnosis and the stroke for which a lawsuit was filed. And I'm going to reserve my final uh, three minutes and 15 seconds for Very time. good. Thank you. Thank you, counsel.
2: Can, can I say something? Yes, just for sure, sure. It's just dawned on me that, and I'm just alerting both sides of this, um, that one of the defendants, um, one of the appellees, uh, North Northeast Georgia Medical Center, Gainesville, right. This is Gainesville. My sister is a nurse there and has been for 30 years. I haven't anticipated um, that this would be a conflict. You know, arguably it could be. I don't personally feel that I would be unable to be unfair. But you know, I guess I would ask that if either side feels, you know, and I'll let you make the decision after today, that I that I would not be objective. Then you know, file an objection with the court. I'm not promising you that it will be granted. I probably would refer it to other judges on our on our court to make a ruling on that. But
3: in any anyway, event, I did want to alert you, on, you know, to that possibility. Okay. Good morning, Mayor, please the court. I'm Scott Bailey, and along with Wayman Forster, uh, we represent Appalese, Dr. McDonald, and Longstreet Clinic. Um, a couple of uh, uh, points that uh, that I'd like to address that. that Mr. Parrish brought up, the the, the sole issue before this court is whether or not this case falls within the so-called new injury exception to the two-year statute of limitations. Um, And Mr. Parrish um, made the statement that the first and only injury that uh, appellate Adams suffered in this case was the stroke that she she suffered in September. The case law uh, states that that is not the issue to be to be considered here. The the misdiagnosis is the the injury. The misdiagnosis is the injury that triggers the statute of limitations. Plaintiffs contend and allege that the misdiagnosis in this case occurred back in January and February when uh, Dr. Penix and Dr. McDonald evaluated Dr. Adams. So we contend that the statute began then because that is when they allege that the misdiagnosis occurred. Then the issue for the court then is to determine whether or not uh, she meets Well, in a move, the
0: misdiagnosis was you know, failure to, to to catch the suspicious um, growths that subsequently became uh, aggressive cancer. I, I don't see how that can be reconciled with your assertion that the misdiagnosis is the injury.
3: Well, in this case, uh, Judge McFadden, in January, she began having dizziness, headache, blurred vision, um, and symptoms consistent with either a TIA, an ischemic attack in her her brain, or migraine. Both of those things were on the differential diagnosis. She was worked up for TIA uh, in January and February. She continued to have symptoms Related to those things throughout the, her course until September, when she suffered. The well, who,
2: now that's a that's a big statement, and may be right. I mean, y'all are more familiar with the record than we are, obviously. But who says? Yeah, because he says, Appellants' counsel says that's not true. So, which expert says that in the record?
3: Well, Judge Rock. I mean, uh, Dr. Rock, plaintiff's expert in this case. Uh, supports that uh, notion as well, well as that
0: testimony was just represented to us as being merely allowing a possibility is that incorrect
3: um, no that's not incorrect but there is no other explanation for those symptoms according to the plaintiff's theory in this case the, the irony is in this case is that the plaintiffs are, are alleging that the standard of care was breached in January and February because these two physicians did not diagnose um, a myxoma, which could, could cause an irregular heartbeat to cause blood clots to form in the heart and then travel through the brain and cause a stroke. So, so that is the, the allegation in the case. They allege that not only did those symptoms that, that triggered the statute in January and February um, were a part of this um, tumor that caused a stroke, they also contend that she continued to have those symptoms all the way up until, until September, and she was never diagnosed until she had the stroke in September.
2: Well, you go ahead. I was going to. I just want to ask you a question of evidence generally. Um, you know, if we find that there is evidence in the file that these symptoms after the event, the first event, uh, were related, if, but we also find that there is evidence that they possibly aren't related, what do we do with that?
3: Well, this is a, a procedural question. It's not a substantive question. And, and the, the trial court determined after an extensive review of the record that there was enough evidence in the record to show that she was not completely asymptomatic. But, well, of course, no,
2: judgment. Yeah, this is de novo review, right? I mean, so, my, you know, go with my question, all right which is there's evidence in the file that says that they're, they're related, consistent with your position, but there's also evidence in the file that the symptoms aren't related. I mean, wouldn't, in, in, under that situation, if we got to that point, wouldn't we have to reverse and say that the uh, appellant is entitled to a trial on that issue?
3: I don't, I don't believe so, Judge, because under the, the, the Amu versus Barnes case, which is a Supreme Court case, and the Cleveland case, which we, we've talked about earlier, uh, those two cases stand for the proposition that this new injury exception does not apply when there, when evidence does demonstrate. And, and under any analysis of the record, How there clear is does some it? evidence that demonstrates that.
4: You say some evidence, but that's my question. is For us, doesn't it have to be the way opposing counsel put it, undisputed? In other words, we don't weigh the evidence. We don't judge it. Um, doesn't it have to be Undisputed. In other words, like Judge Ray said, there's not some evidence here, there's not some there, but it just has to be the only evidence. Is that? Would you agree with that as our standard?
3: I don't believe so, Judge Rickman, because in this, in the cases where the new injury did apply um, and the new injury exception did apply, and, and the court determined that that, that the uh, plaintiff did have longer than two years to, to file their case, those cases. W- there was no dispute that the patient was asymptomatic at all by either side. So, so it, the issue that, that the Supreme Court in the Cleveland case and the Amu, Amu case found most important was whether or not the patient was completely asymptomatic for a time such that there could be no dispute that when she began to have new symptoms, there was a new injury. So ha- those cases were
2: clear. Yeah, but, how, but how, can, how can the judge at the trial, though, not well forget about us for a second how can the judge at the trial level say how could she discount testimony from expert witnesses that said the symptoms weren't related i mean I, as far as i can remember from being a trial judge i don't think she's entitled to weigh that at all and, and there's no credibility decisions that she can make that's why we we're able to review this de novo is because you know judge Vesson had to had to do so without making any credibility calls
3: so, so the, the, it, there's a distinction to be made here between whether or not there were symptoms. There's no dispute that there were symptoms.
0: Well, no everybody bif- is going to have s- symptoms of some sort. we have well, got to is- prevail under undisputed facts that there were symptoms of, of the condition that, 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 that led to the stroke. Like a headache.
2: I think we all have headaches. And the question is, was, was her headaches in February related to what happened to her in January and, you know, arguably the appellant says no, but then says even if they, even if the defendant says that it is, we have evidence that says it's not. So that's why I'm saying I'm, I'm just not sure right. that the trial court judge is able to pick and I, and I go back to a decision that Justice Blackwell made in the first emergency room case that went up five years ago. Um, and he made it, he said in this particular case, I don't remember the name. I remember the case because it was mine, and I got reversed on it. Um, but I don't remember the name. I blocked that out. Uh, but he said, you know, it's not for the court to judge the credibility of the expert witness's testimony if it comes in. Um, and I'm assuming that all this expert testimony is admissible, so we're not dealing with a Daubert issue. And then the question becomes, do we even weigh it?
3: Right, and, and I think there's two separate issues here. Um, and, I, and I think what, what the court here is concerned about is whether or not there is sufficient evidence in the record from expert witnesses to make a determination as to whether there was proximate cause and whether or not those symptoms that she was suffering from um, were, in fact, uh, being caused by the, the uh, misdiagnosis of her myxoma. That That's not the question here. The only question here is whether or not she, she was asymptomatic such that the new injury exception applies. Okay,
2: so let me ask ask this question in a different way. Hypothetically, could you have a case where the parties disagreed as to whether or not certain symptoms were related to the previous misdiagnosis or not? I mean, is that possible?
3: Not only do I think that's possible, I think that's a central part of all the cases okay. that, that
2: deal with this issue. And so, if, if there was, if there was conflicting evidence as to whether the symptoms that occurred later were related to the original misdiagnosis or not, do you agree that it's a jury question to determine the ultimate outcome about whether they were related or not, so that then the jury could apply the statute of limitation? Because a jury, I, a jury can't actually be given jury instructions on statute of limitations, can't they? Uh,
3: I'm, I'm not sure about the latter part of your question, Judge, but I, but I do agree that, that, that if there is conflicting expert testimony as to whether yeah. her symptoms were being caused by this tumor, I agree. You
2: just don't think it's conflicting here? I,
3: I do think there is conflicting evidence in, in this case about that. I don't think that's the question before this court. I don't think it's this court's responsibility or, or, or duty to determine whether or not from a medical standpoint, her headaches, her blurred vision were related to a migraine or whether it was more symptomatic of what's, her. What's the,
2: pur- what's the purpose of this whole symptoms issue? Isn't, isn't that so that it triggers a notice to the plaintiff that, hey, this maybe they were wrong when they said I was okay? And so that then runs the clock as far as when you have to file a lawsuit, right? I believe that's exactly right.
3: And and our contention is that she was on notice in January and February when she was worked up for a ischemic attack. And that, therefore, she was on notice at that point um, that she could have been misdiagnosed. And so, all the cases say that the injury is the well, misdiagnosis.
2: That, that's, that's, that's what I want, I want to get to next, if I can. Um, uh, yeah, I'm certainly familiar with the legal... Uh, malpractice standard, which I think is pretty deferential to lawyers that the malpractice begins when the event, the negligence occurs. In this case, in February, um, assuming these symptoms should have put her on notice that she was disdiagnosed, had she filed a complaint, what would the complaint have been for? It would have been for malpractice, but what would the damages have been at that point?
3: Well, at that point, I don't know whether she would have had a, had a claim or not.
2: Um, so if the stroke then happens two years past the date of the original misdiagnosis, is she just out of luck then? Because she had, maybe she had some headaches, but she's just
3: out of luck because she could have gone back to the doctor, I guess? or Possibly, Your Honor, but that, that's not the case yeah. that we have
0: here. Well, you said a minute ago, you don't know at an earlier point if she had a claim or not isn't that a fatal admission because that's the whole point the statute starts when the claim comes into existence
3: well her her injury that they that they have complained of in the underlying complaint happened in september of 2013 which was only uh nine months or so before the the actual misdiagnosis occurred so her original injury occurred january 2013 that's when we contend that the statute started running. She mm-hmm. had a stroke in September 2013, so therefore she had plenty of, of time under the statute to still make her claim under the law. And I would like to reserve my final few minutes for my. For You're my the
0: uh, appellee, aren't you?
3: I am the appellee, correct.
0: Yeah, you, you don't get to reserve. I'm sorry. For
3: my for my co-counsel.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Please yeah. go ahead.
5: Dr. Penix from Northeast Georgia. What I want to emphasize as much as I can is that this is a procedural issue. It's a matter of fairness. The statute of limitations is two years. The the courts have said that 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 is from the misdiagnosis because that is the injury unless there's a new injury. But that only comes into play if there's been a period of asymptomatic uh, asymptomatic.
4: To Judge Ray's question, which really was helpful to me in processing it, had the plaintiff filed that complaint, when you get to the damages portion and plaintiff has been damaged, what would it be? what, what would it be for?
5: Whatever her injuries and damages grew up to that point, I disagree that there was no injury. She had a, a TIA under their evidence. She comes in, she's got pain. Uh, my client uh, uh, examines her, sends her on her way to another neurologist. In the meantime, she continues to have pain. She's incurring at cost expenses. For medication to do things to treat a, uh, a migraine that they're saying didn't happen, she could have filed a lawsuit for that. I asked Dr. Rothrock at his deposition, and this is fact in the case that she did have a need to go to a doctor. She did have a need for medication. She did have a need for follow-up. So there was an injury, and 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 that all gets back to the point that she was not asymptomatic. What she testified.
4: What would to be the what would be the injury if if it was essentially called a migraine, Um, I'll give you some more time, or judgment, but if the injury is a migraine, which she's being treated for, then she would be going to the doctor for already under the misdiagnosis. But but that,
5: that was, the injury was... And I want to make clear, too, that this is not a case of a mixoma that, that transitions into aggressive ca- cancer. This is not a cancer case. This is a myxoma in the heart. The theory is that it was putting out emboli that were causing these things, the pain that she was having. She wasn't having migraines, according to their testimony. She had a myxoma, and what was happening was she was continuing to have... Uh, symptoms from that nexoma that they were shooting off. Now they say that uh, Dr. Rothrock was just giving possibilities. I asked him on his deposition what was causing these intermittent things that he admitted she continued to have intermittent symptoms. He said that the most plausible explanation was that she was continuing to have emboli. The only time he got into the possibility was on redirect examination after they took a break. And then he came back and said, "Well, that's just a possibility."
2: That's still evidence, though, right? It is evidence. I mean, we can't we can't weigh that. I mean, so wait a minute, wait a minute. He says it originally. He says it in a way that's favorable to the but Then later he says it another way. You know, how do how do we reconcile that? Unless unless you're able to strike his testimony, then we have to take that as being all put together if he said it at one time, right?
5: You don't weigh it and Judge Besson doesn't weigh it. It doesn't make any difference because getting back to what we're here about, statute of limitations, this is a procedural issue. We're not here to determine substantively what caused that pain, what caused this or what the problem was. The question, the question is, was there a misdiagnosis? Generally, that's the time the statute starts to run at the time of the misdiagnosis. The exception is, if there's later a new injury, I'll admit there was a new injury, she had a stroke in September, but we don't get there because the only time you get there is if there was a period of uh, when the patient was completely asymptomatic. She was not. She
0: testified. Well, it seems to me that asymptomatic is kind of the central question in this case. Everybody has some sort of symptoms almost every day. And it becomes some sort of a fact question whether these were symptoms of of the condition, of the condition at issue, and so how is this anything other than, you know, de novo review? There's some evidence, at least, to support the other side's interpretation. Where
5: this comes into play is this is just not any simple. She's not having a cold. She's never had headaches before. She has a T.I.A. right? She goes to the emergency room. She continues to have those headaches and vision issues, this is all in the record. There's no question that she had that. This becomes an issue of fairness. If she had not had any more symptoms, and then two years later, four years later, whatever, she has a stroke, she never, it wouldn't be fair, she never was put on notice, I need to think something else is going on. So
2: I, I think I understand your point. Your point is, it doesn't matter whether or not they were or were not related, but if they could have been related, that put her on notice.
5: But it's a, it's a fairness situation. Now she's on notice and, and she's got two years to do something. And,
4: and, the, and how does a trial court or, how does a trial court or our, our court, where is that line? And so my question would be, does the trial court weigh Well, there's evidence she testified in her deposition that she had a severe headache, went to the ER, and got some medication one time over that period. Is that enough? What if the deposition was, you know, I did have a real bad headache one night. I mean, how, how, where is that line? And then who makes that call? Does that question fair, make sense?
5: It it, it doesn't, and I I can't tell you the answer to that, but I can tell you that, I think it was in the Amu case. This is, uh, and quite frankly, I can't remember. One, One of them was a case, it was the cancer case, where the patient comes in and is diagnosed with just having some fibroids or whatever, and after two weeks, stops bleeding. Never has any more bleeding after that. So there was a period uh, where she did have a little bit of symptoms, but it was just two week period of bleeding, and then after that, no more symptoms. And the court said that was a that was a period where the statute is in her favor. What we have here is we have her telling us, I came into the doctor, and he told me. He told me Dr. Penix was wrong. He said you had migraines. I think you had a TIA. And she's starting to question, and this is in the record, well, what? maybe something else is going on here. And she continues to have symptoms. She testified that she continued to have symptoms. There's no period that she had that was asymptomatic. Therefore, she, in fairness, we don't get to the subsequent injury she lost on the statute of limitations procedurally. It doesn't make any difference. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, and, I, and I'm sorry to take more time. Thank you. I
1: have a few things to say in rebuttal. Um, first, uh, it's false. We never contended that the symptoms during the intervening time period were caused by the myxoma. That's not true. We never contended that. It's not any pleadings, not any briefing. Uh, just simply false. Second, um, we never uh, directly examined Dr. Rothrock during his uh, deposition. Uh, Mr. Cole uh, misspoke. That was actually on cross examination by Mr. Forrester, who's also seated at my left. Uh, I'm going to put the testimony down. I... Well, here, here it is. Uh, I just don't think we have enough information to be able to say anything about the etiology of the symptoms she was having to a degree of medical certainty. There it is. I mean, there's more below. <laughs> that was Dr. Rothrock's testimony. And again, all of their experts thought that it was something else. Another thing uh, that's worth noting, uh, and I don't think it's important given the way the expert testimony is in this case, uh, is that uh, Kelly Adams saw an ENT doctor between uh, Dr. Penix and Dr. McDonald. Who diagnosed her with eustachian tube dysfunction said some of her symptoms could have been due to that. Also, uh, she was being treated by uh, an allergist who was, had diagnosed her with sinus headaches, and some of her headaches could have been caused by that. And so there's more than one medical condition uh, that she had that was ongoing at the time. And the expert testimony only attributes the January 31st event and the September 17th event. the myxoma and you need expert testimony in a case like this the the symptoms non-specific symptoms that aren't linked to the misdiagnosed condition that doesn't start the statute of limitations what starts the statute of limitations is an injury or death caused by negligence that's the plain language of the statute Uh, and you need expert testimony to get there Um, and you know finding that the statute of limitations uh, started at any time prior to September 17 2013 disregards the plain language of the statute. It disregards the case law Cleveland v. and Amu V. Barnes. Uh, and it also would violate the Supreme Court's decision in Schessel because you're starting the statute of limitations before there's an injury. And uh, uh, that's all I have today, and, uh, unless there are any questions. Uh, so I
2: just have one follow-up question if I can ask. I understand you're not suing for any of these headaches and such that occur between January and um, September, correct. Your theory is is that they were unrelated, correct. Um, you've argued that that no expert has found with a medical degree of certainty that those headaches were related, correct. Do you have a case that dealt that, that says that whether or not the symptoms are related has you has to use the medical degree of certainty, or is it as the defendant argues, the appellate uh, appellate argues that. The question is, could it be such that it would put you on notice that these things may be related?
1: That's certainly not the law. Look at Cleveland v. Gannon. It was a kidney cancer case that metastasized. The plaintiff in that case was urinating blood, and the statute of limitations didn't start because there was a possible other explanation for him urinating blood other than metastatic cancer. The idea that some nonspecific headaches that could be attributed to a multitude of conditions. I mean, Dr. Adams, Kelly Adams testified that exercise seemed to bring about some of these headaches. I mean, the idea that that would start the statute of limitations when there's no medical evidence linking it to the negligence, uh, that's just not the law. Thank Thank you. Thank you for hearing this case.